How you doing? This is Craig here from Bass Lessons Melbourne and welcome to episode 48 of the Player Profile podcast. Um, this episode features Mr. Kevin Scott currently on tour with Fork. Um, I caught up with Kevin at the Wangaratta Jazz and Blues Festival, um, which is about three hours north of Melbourne. I went up there, spent the day hanging out with him. We had a good time, we had a good chat, we had a bit of a jam. Um, unfortunately, the audio for the jam didn't quite turn out as I'd hoped with my little Zoom recorder, um, the levels got a bit messed up, so um, we had to go with the audio from the GoPro, um, but it's, it's passable, I think uh, I think you get the idea. Um, Kevin is also um, the bass player on call for the likes of Wayne Krantz uh, and Jimmy Herring, um, so he's a busy guy as well as um, putting on his own jam night in Atlanta and tons of other stuff. He's uh, he's definitely a man on the scene at the minute. Um, so yeah, we, we had a good chat about um, uh, basses, music, um, his approach to improvising, um, what it was like playing with John McLaughlin as well, actually. Forgot to mention that. Um, we also talk about digging into some old Jacko transcriptions and how that's always a good exercise no matter what point you are in your bass playing career so yeah um as always this podcast is brought to you in part by the lovely people over at fbase um, they've been handcrafting guitars and basses for over 40 years and offer contemporary as well as vintage inspired designs so go and check them out over at www.fbase.com um, I would like to thank you guys for listening, as always. I really appreciate it. Um, be great to get some emails from you guys. Let me know what you think. Um, maybe some guests that you would like to see on the show. If you have the inside scoop of anyone that's coming to Australia, please let me know. Any contact e- emails is always appreciated. Um, but yeah, drop me, a, drop me an email, info at basslessonsmelbourne.com, um, and I will get back to you. Anyway, without any further ado, here is episode 48, Kevin Scott.
Hey guys, how's it going? This is Craig from Bass Lessons Melbourne. Welcome to another player profile episode and today I'm joined by Mr. Kevin Scott. How are you man? I'm good. Good it's to see good. you. Yeah. We are in um, the Bahamas. No, we're not in the Bahamas. <laughs> we're in um, Wangaratta. Yep. Sunny Wangaratta for the Jazz the Festival. Beautiful. Uh, Principality. Yeah. The uh, spa and sauna <laughs> yeah. area here. You got some bikini models in the background. Yep. Yep. Yeah. On break. Um, what brings you to this neck of the woods? Uh, playing jazz and blues festival with Fork. Cool. Yeah. How's that going? Great. Played last night? Played last night, yep. Yeah. Packed house? Pretty good. Yeah. It was a good, good amount of people in there. This is the end of a tour for you guys, Yeah, right? this is the last date. We're leaving tomorrow going back to Atlanta. Damn. Yeah. Actually, maybe, maybe we'll switch that microphone to this side if you're going to be talking in this general direction on yeah. You can stick it. Like where I have it there. You don't want to, don't want to ruin your uh, vintage T-shirt either. This is a vintage shirt, actually. Yeah. Dwayne Trucks bought it for me. It's like an eighty-dollar shirt. Is that good? Really? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's pretty uh, forgiving. Okay. Good. It's an eighty-dollar shirt. Yeah. Vintage ECW. <laughs> I actually saw the real ECW a few times. Yeah, when they were still around. Yeah. Before Vince bought everybody out. So the, and then it became WWE. Yeah, Vince F. bought everything. Well, WWE now. Yeah. Right. But back in the day, it was WWF. Yeah. Yeah. So ECW was like the original. ECW was like the kind of the outlaw, kind of more mains, like the the underground wrestling right federation that started a lot of the modern trends that's popular. So now. it was kind of straddled that like entertainment, but still real shit. Yeah, I mean, it's it was just like a lot more edgy. Yeah, you know, like kind of like Jerry Springer wrestling or something. But <laughs> it's like the best wrestlers, but they wrestled. They weren't like household names or anything. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and you, um, I understand you kind of dabbled. Yeah, I did for a second. You know, I did a uh, stint in the backyard wrestling circuit for a minute as Ted Technical. I went to a school for maybe two times. Okay. And then wrestled a match and. A bowling alley in Panama City. What was your wrestler? Ted Technical. Ted, Ted Technical. Yeah. Right. Did you have a thing? Like you know, like Jake Snake had a snake. No, I, 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 I wish. No. I, it was you know. A calculator. I had a calculator. <laughs> notes. So technical. Just writing notes here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I should have done that actually. So, fork tour. Mm -hmm. um, Switzerland. Yes. You've done that before? I've played Switzerland before. Yeah, were you in Bern or? Uh, ba Basel, Baal? No, it was a smaller place, but this guy, uh, Stefan, hosts this amazing jazz series there. Okay. So it was like three nights of recording and videoing. Oh, sweet. We didn't put up, you know, amazing meals and. <laughs> three nights in the one club? Yeah. Cool. So we're gonna do a lot, and he's gonna press all the to uh, vinyl. That's awesome. Sick. Yeah. Cool. And so there's a scene for it. Yeah. Most. I mean, a lot of guys. A lot of people took the uh, 
the train there. But uh, it was really good crowds every night and amazing quality recording. Mm. I was running stereo. I had two bass amps. What? Yeah. <laughs> I had, well, I had the, uh, I had a vintage B15 running my clean channel, and then I ran all my effects through the Noble, through the Aguilar. So you're like cleaning all wet? Yeah. Was it bliss? It was. Yeah. It was and pretty awesome. You probably didn't even have to have a, that load in, in those kind of situations. No, oh. not at all. It was amazing. Yeah. I, I gigged in Switzerland once. And it's one of the things I remember as well, was just how, like, everything... It's like what you would think about the Swiss. Like, everything ran as it should. Oh, everything. The sound was just like, you know, turn up the monitors. It's like, yeah, that sounds great. Um, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of cheese, too. Cheese, yeah. A lot of cheese and wine. It's so clean. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing, amazing country, for sure. So then from Switzerland down through some other European countries? Yeah, we did. Uh, after that, we did um, Italy, Germany. We did China. Okay. China before Australia, the Blue Note. What was that like? Uh, you know, it was interesting. Uh, the crowd was pretty bad. Young? No, it's just the club's been open for two years. Is that all? Yeah, so a lot of people were just kind of, I mean, there's a woman reading a book in the front row and all these business people cheering and talking throughout the set. Right, okay. They don't, they don't quite get it yet. They don't get it yet. And one guy was sitting in the front like this the entire time, <laughs> staring at me. <laughs> so it was kind of hard so to you catch. you know you're doing a good job. Yeah, kind of hard to catch a vibe, yeah, sort right. of. But it was a great gig. Who know. knows? I mean, next time you go back. I've heard the Shanghai Jazz Festival is pretty Yeah, epic. well, they're going to open a Shanghai Blue Note, supposedly. So. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then Australia, so like Sydney. Sydney and then here. Sydney and here. I read in the press that um, Henry from Fork captains boats. Yeah, he's, he's big in the sailing. Yeah. Big time. So apparently when he was here before, he actually took the band on the boat out of Sydney Harbour. Wow, I didn't know that. Didn't do that here? No. Kept that one quiet. Kept that one quiet, yeah. Yeah, he's like, you know, through the shipping lanes and all that kind of stuff. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a great sailor. That's his passion besides music. And how, so, how did the um, how did the fork gig come come by for you? Because originally um, it was same guys, but with Mike mm-hmm. League. Is that Mike right? Mike League, yep. Him and Henry and JT and uh, JT Thomas, drummer, and Adam Rogers started. Ah, Adam Rogers, right? Yeah. And that was years ago. And then. Uh, and then just Mike wasn't just wasn't cutting it, so they yeah. Had to <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think Adam was too busy, and then they got Chris, and then Mike became too busy. So uh, I was, you know, I started playing with Wayne Krantz about two years ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, Harry's looking for a bass player, and uh, Tim Lafay recommended me, I think. And Wayne, I mean, uh, Henry Cady said we played with Wayne one night. And, Sure, I'll play, sure. Really? So just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that at 55? Yeah. I wonder how many bands have been, you know, put together from musicians going to check out other musicians at the 55. Probably band. a lot. I mean, Black Star, essentially. Yep. The, the Bowie thing with Tim, that's where he came to see them, right? Yep. That's why you should always 
every gig you play should be. You never know who's going to be there. You always have to look at it like it's. You can't look down any rooms, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, when I went to Fifty Five Bar, I was like, "Oh, this is the Fifty Five Bar." Right. <laughs> you know, it's like because it's it's iconic. It's known the world the world over. I mean, you go in, it's just like any other kind of little Greenwich Village bar. Man, it's a die for sure. Yeah. You know, but it's got a it's got a thing. It's got. It, what amazes me about that place is how good recording sound from there. Yeah. It makes no sense. I think it's just a really dead room. It's gotta be. Super dead. It's gotta be. So I went there to see Mike Stern mm -hmm. with Richard Bonner. Mm -hmm. And I keep on forgetting the drummer's name. It's unreal. But we got there super early, you know, like, oh yeah. you know, music students like front row and. Man, I used to, we used to fly up from Atlanta to go catch Wayne. Yeah. For years, you know, you know, waiting. You know, I remember one time me, Dwayne and Nick, we we were staying out in the cold for half hour to go see that show. I mean, was it cold or was it cold for you? It was freezing. <laughs> it was freezing. So it was like 10, 9 degrees. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was like 20 degrees out. Yeah. It was really cold. Yeah. You know. Um, well, can you remember the first time you had Wayne? First time? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was living with this. I guess I was about 20, 21. I was living with this guy, Greg Perry, this drummer, great drummer. He was a little older than I was. And, you know, I was, at the time I was kind of getting, kind of frustrated with a lot of things. Just in terms, cause I've been running this jam session for like 13 years. Mm. And I was, we're still playing a lot of tunes and I was getting way more into improv in, in terms of like wanting to do just straight improvised sessions. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them just kind of went to that kind of scratch the sniff style of free jazz, you know. And my buddy, I was describing this to Greg and how I wish there was a find a sound where it was like, you know, kind of 70s Herbie mixed with avant-garde mixed with like rock. He goes, well, there's a guy doing that. <laughs> his name's Wayne Kranz. You can check him out. And, you know, that was back when you could get all these bootlegs off his website. Yeah, that's right. Day. You could buy them. Basic Live. Oh, yeah, he would record essentially every week, I think, and put it up or something like that for sale. It's quite so, pioneering for... I know. What, 13 years ago, 10 years ago? Longer, yeah. Late, late 90s, was it? Yeah, late 90s, 2000 era. Yeah. And... Um, so I got real obsessed with it, big time obsessed. Yeah. And was that Tim on bass? Tim was on bass, or Anthony. The recordings I had, most of them was on Carlock and Carlock, or yeah. Cliff Allman. And uh, I got real obsessed with the concept. Mm. I think bought his book. Okay. And did it become any clearer? Uh, yeah. Like, like I mean, the concept of what how to improvise in that way became a lot clearer, you know, because it's it's mostly based around, you know, formulas, you know, because. So if you if you know the kind of things to look for and listen for, it, it makes sense. Because yes. first time I heard it, it was yeah. like, that band just turned on a dime and went to this slow shuffle yeah. from frenetic 16 stuff. Hughes, Wayne Hughes, all that. Yeah. 
so it's it, so basically so I, I like the concept so much because it's you have kind of this this ringleader that decides not the harmony but the the vibe and the tempo yeah which is way cooler excuse me excused um but yeah so i got obsessed with wayne and started really trying to get down that rabbit hole as much as i could without studying with him Mm. you know and uh Okay. Allergic to interviews. I'm allergic to allergic the Scotsman. Um, but uh, so that was a rabbit hole. I went down and and uh, through that I started discovering more of the New York scene. You know. <laughs> wow. Maybe, I imagine you grew allergic to alcohol. Yeah, I think it's the I think it's just the Aussie. Uh, That'd be bad. Plants or something. I don't. But uh, You're right. I'm good, yeah. And uh, so I went down that hole. So this is when you said you're like what, 20, 20, 21. In the early twenties. Yeah. And you're still in Atlanta. I was in Atlanta. Yep. Yep. So you're like, and then so you, did you kind of take that and that was the genesis for your jam, or you were already doing the jam? We were doing the jam at the time, but we we're still playing a bunch of tunes and improvising around okay. them, you know, instead of just straight up. Yeah, it was like, you know, inner urge for a year straight, you know. You got to do it, you know? Yeah, you have to. But uh, so my buddy Carter Arrington is this amazing guitar player down in Austin. We decided one day, you know what, we're going to New York for a week and just go catch a bunch of music. And I was about 23 at the time. And uh, that changed everything for me because I saw Wayne, I saw Dave Benning, I saw Ari Honing, saw Tim play. Yeah. Um, it's amazing what you can catch in New York in such a short space of time. Oh, it was insane. Yeah. It's like, when I was there for 10 days and I saw like, you know, Weckle, Will Lee, Mike Stern, Lettuce. Right. <laughs> and I was like, okay, now it makes sense. Yeah. You know? Yep. To be there for 10 days and see all of that. So yeah, just, a year's worth of music in 10 Pucci, days. Pucci Bell. Wow. That was great. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah so then we... That changed everything because I, I saw Wayne, Tim, Benny, and Dan Wise do a complete improv gig at the Iridium. And I was like, they ran everybody out of the room. It was great. <laughs> you know? And then I uh, was like, you know what? Like, if they're doing it, then I'm going to do it down here. Like, there's no reason why. Like, I want to do this. I want to do improvised music. So. And it was the, the caliber of players to do it? Uh, yeah, I mean, at the time we were so young, it was like, didn't you just yeah. yeah. So we're all developing a lot of shit together, which was really really cool time. Yeah, you know, and uh, but you know, before that it was Colonel Bruce Hampton, like that was. Uh, so I mean, my biggest influence in terms of uh, harmony and rhythm and, and kind of perspective is Wayne and Bruce. Okay, like that's two guys that I've spent. But it's, you know, I've spent time studying and then studying with, you know. Yeah. So it was like those two guys were my biggest inspirations in terms of uh, the overall get, spectrum. One of the things that really stands out for me with that would be, and it's obviously evident you're playing, it's, it's, it's time, you yeah. know. That constant subdivision, you know, that's, that Tim has, that, that, that it's like, 
you know, was it just from checking out that stuff that that developed, or was that something you kind of had, and then it was more just getting into the thinking on the spot and executing it? Yeah, I mean, I a lot of it. You know, when I was even in high school, I would do these improv shows in Dothan, where I'd you know ask a friend from New Orleans to give him a Greyhound bus ticket and come do improv. Because at the time, I was really big the Sean Lane's trio with Jonas Hilberg and Jeff Sight. So, yeah. And their way of improvisation, which was uh, not, it wasn't like rhythmically as uh, crazy as Wayne, but but just the, I mean, Sean was a genius, you know. Him and Sype together was like Coltrane and Elvin mm. to me. And uh, so then it kind of evolved into Wayne, you know, right. thinking that concept and then adding like the, because the whole idea of it's time, you know, like, uh, harmonically speaking there's a lot of information to obtain that's been around for a long time you know but in terms of time like everybody has their own personal sense of time mm. so that's really more of your stamp I think is your your time yeah you know and you've been lucky enough to work with some <clears throat> pretty outstanding drummers and that has I mean that has everything to do with it I mean it's you know I, I mean Fork you've got Oh, man, JT is one, I mean, the guy's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that that is the key is, you know, when you you play with drummers, you know, you're kind of adapting, you're kind of like feeding each other off each other. So you're giving them a little something, they're giving you back a little something. Yeah. It would take forever, you know. So, you know, I've been very lucky to play with, some amazing drummers. Has there been some guys who have been like, you know, great drummers, like legit out there doing it, but you just haven't gelled with? Does that happen so much or you're pretty adaptable? I'm, I mean, at this point I'm pretty adaptable. Um, but, you know, it's so weird. Like once, especially the drum chair, once they get to the world class level, it's like, if you can't adapt with that, then yeah it's not them it's not their fault yeah you know <laughs> so but obviously you know, you know like, uh, but like but like playing with Zach for example yeah like do you ju- I mean what was that first time like when you plugged in and he had the hats and the kick and you went and played whatever like well the first game with him was you, with Wayne right and the thing is oh geez God. Uh, you know I was obsessed well, all Zach stuff outside of Wayne. Right. So what? So like, what was he in Rudder? No, that was no, Matt Chamberlain. No, it was uh, no Rudder was Carlock. Um, but oh. Zach had this band called Boomish. Boomish. This band called Beluth. And a website. It was the Boomish website? I've yeah. Heard the mythical. Yeah, and and I remember, I, you know, I discovered uh, I discovered Boomish through my buddy Chris Hunt, and. He was like, dude, this is up your alley. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And my buddy Mark got me into uh, all of the stuff he did with uh, Bedrock when Yuri came. No. Which is like long sessions of improvised music that Zach edited down to make kind of pieces out of. Okay. And I, you know, I, I you know, Zach is, I mean, beyond a drummer, I mean, he's one of the most influential musicians yeah, he's, think, he's, of he's all an time. Artist. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's, so yeah, so I get a, you know, at the time I'm playing with Wayne a lot and, and he's like, 
you know, hey man, I want can you do this tour for a month in the States? And I was like, cool. And we're, you know, Danziger's on it. And I was like, oh man, that's awesome. <laughs> so he's like, well, come to the five bar, I got Zach on it. And, you know, right when we get the first kind of note, you know, we're both kind of like, cool, you know? So uh, that's how that happened with him. Yeah. You know? But we're also huge wrestling fanatics. You know, I am I am still, but Zach was at the first WrestleMania. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he was there as a, a child. So we yeah, always uh, want to do something. And I guess. Yeah, maybe. Uh, he. Uh, <laughs> he came out to Atlanta for a week to record. And we had this guy named Brett, who was an amazing kind of sample artist kind of NPC guy. Okay. We recorded a bunch of great music, but um, there wasn't like any kind of real concept behind it, you know? And so one Just day- Just a stepping stone maybe to something else? Yeah, because we, and the stuff I, I'm definitely gonna try to put out one of these days once we can figure out what to do with it. But but I'd suggest, I was like, man, why don't we just start, we just overdub wrestling interviews over it, auto-tune, you know? And that led into the extreme because you know, Zach is so brilliant and you can just see like t- 10 years ahead of a concept. Yeah. So he came up with the whole idea of Wednesday Night Titans. Right. From that. So that's the current thing that you're yeah. doing with them? Yeah. Which is wrestling footage cut with like similar um, execution to Edit Bunker? Yeah. Similar. But themed with wrestling. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of tongue in cheek, but not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was like a serious music, but it's not a serious topic. I mean, not not to say the wrestling is not a serious topic, mm-hmm. but you know. Yeah, it's it's just an endless treasure trove <laughs> of comedic um, value out of it. You know? Yeah, I mean it's. We can never run out of I, got, I saw a clip the other day. I'm not sure who the wrestler was, but he was like, I just want to find a woman. Yeah, that's Dr. That's Dr. D. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. And then, it's, of course, yeah. he comes up with a rhythm. You know, the original track, when our first rehearsal was, I came up with this kind of ending for it, and I was like, holy shit. Okay. <laughs> you know, and he has to go in there painstakingly. Man, people, people who not even grasp the amount of time he puts into the video I mean, alone. Cutting this takes me like a day, you know, an afternoon. Yeah. And this is not <laughs> hard. Right. You know, it syncs it up. Just click the camera and it's, you know, no, he, what he's doing is it's just... next level. It's just... It's, why it, would you it, do that to yourself? Yeah, it hurts. It hurts thinking about it. And yeah. the hardest part, too, a lot of times is the general public and a lot of musicians don't really understand yeah. what's happening. You know, but on, yeah. on the one hand, like, it's it's kind of like, ja- like jazz. It's it, like, you know, the general public or whatever, the musicians might go, oh yeah, that was cool. You, but you don't understand this, like, the man's entire life work yeah. culminating in that performance. Yep. But does that make it better or worse or more worthy or less worthy? I mean, there is something to be said for taking things at face value. Sure. And it still has to stand on its own. Yeah. It's just hard because, you know, when when you get compared to certain things, okay, and you're kind of like, 
not even close. Mm. There's yeah. no VJ involved. <laughs> yeah, or the idea of like, you know, somebody sitting in their room and playing along to something, you know, comparing yeah, right. to, to that is like, no, don't, that, that, that's the thing that gets under my skin sometimes. So, yeah. again, it goes back to the internet comments, which is stupid to even yeah. Still care about anyway. Bother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, the, you've got that beautiful experiences with some amazing drummers, but also, Guitar players, yeah, guitar players too. You know, I mean, with Jimmy Herring, yep, um, the Colonel, yep, <laughs> yep, Wayne, yep, uh, Chris and Fork, yep. You know, so McLaughlin. Did you get to play with them? Yeah. Wow. That whole yeah. Tour. Well, okay. Six weeks of that. Um, who kicked your ass the hardest, Bruce? Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. You even come to that first, but yeah, I mean. You know, the thing about the thing about Bruce, which was which is uh, like, there's I'm gonna light another cigarette. Go for it. He, um, you know, a lot of me and Jimmy talk about this all the time. It's like there's guys that have there's a different sound with guys who played with Bruce for real, because essentially what Bruce does to you or did was he puts your ego in a blender. You know, and he, I mean, it's a, it, I would not be half the person I am if it wasn't for him at an early, lucky enough to be with him at an early age where. How old were you? Oh, 20, let's see. 2012, I started playing with him. Six years ago? Yeah, 2011, 2012, so. Let's see, 33. 26. Yeah, 26. 27. Yeah. So, when he. Is it in a loving way? Oh, yeah. Is it, at the time, it doesn't feel like it, but in retrospect, it is. Well, you know, it was weird. I had a, me, me and his connection, you know, I was, I was already not up my own ass as much as, you know, a lot of my peers were at the time. So to me, it was just, to me, Bruce was just reinstating what I thought and then adding in 10 times more wisdom on top of it. You know, because he would say the stuff like, at the end of the day, it's just you're putting metal to a piece of wood. <laughs> but it's also the most important thing in the world is art. Mm. But in music, you mm. know. But in the other way, it's like, dude, you're not a doctor. You're not a fireman. You're not saving lives. Mm -hmm. You know, you go out there for an hour or two and push metal to wood. <laughs> But when you do, it has to yeah. mean something. Intention. It's all yeah. about intention. You know? Yeah. And, that's, and that was his big thing. Was, and, you know, and, and, and uh, as all the good players that came out of Bruce, there was a lot of casualties, too, that, that uh, couldn't, they couldn't comprehend it. Yeah, right. Because he would just see through you and find out, like, you know, how, what buttons can I push with him in order to get him better or make him lose his mind and quit or just go back to being a jackass you know? yeah right so what would, you, what would you say would be the the biggest flip speech that he flipped for you just bass playing yeah right I mean just doing your job yeah I mean cause I was I was a six string and kind of fusion guy until I was about 24 and again there's nothing wrong with that when it's done properly but 
at the time I was playing in, in a kind of like a fraternity bar band called Holly Kine and then doing my jazz gigs in Atlanta. So, you know, me playing like a Van Morrison tune with He's a like, bridge sound, <laughs> you know, just shitting yeah. all over the place. Yeah. You know, wasn't good. That's not going to fly. So, you know, I was... I was lucky enough in high school, I, I bought a 73P bass for about $300 from, this, from a bass player in Dothan that was kind of down as luck at the time. You mean just a bass player? <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he had some, some, some substance problems. Yeah, right. But he, I used to play with my dad at this piano bar gig um, on Fridays every now and then. He kind of came in and was like, I'm selling this bass, you want to buy it? And, I was like, well, cool, I'm making this amount, so I'll give you the rest of the weekend. So I bought the bass, and man, that thing sat and sat for years. Oh, really? Because I was playing my Warwick or my Auto six match. string. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly, you yeah. know, and... Um, it's good for your facility, though. Yeah, it, it, ex everything happens for a reason, everything's important. I don't look down yeah. on any style. Yeah. But uh, eventually, all these great drummers in Atlanta were like, coming to my house and going, why aren't you playing that? I was like, well, I can't play that fast on it or something. <laughs> like, no, man, you gotta switch over to P. And then uh, I eventually did, because um, I was so frustrated with <clears throat> just always practicing with soloing over changes. Mm. Like lost the reason why I started playing bass in the first place, which is to be like Duck Dud when I heard Booker T yeah. when I was 10. I think that's important is like, I get, you know, from teaching and stuff and students and even just checking out online forums and stuff like that, is people are really obsessed with that. Like, what scale should I use over, you know, a D7 chord or, or what, what should I do for this? And it's like, okay, you can do this or you can do whatever the hell you want. But ultimately it comes down to, do you really want to obtain this knowledge? Because it's a long journey. And if you don't, if you're not really into playing like that if, if it's just because you think you should then don't do it right like make what make what you can already do even better play to your strengths obviously you know improve a little bit but don't worry about it like I mean especially for bass especially I mean, for bass yeah that was the, <clears throat> the amount know, of times you get called to do that and it's, it's not, even the fact of like playing for the song you know and the atmosphere and of what's happening around yeah, you, you. You never get that question, you know? How do I play for the song? No, nobody ever nobody really asks that, that, you know? Cause it's, you know, but that should be... That's a very one. intuitive thing to begin with, you know? Yeah. So, you know, Bruce's thing too was, you know, Bruce was a bluesman. Mm. So, at the end of the day, and, you know, I'm playing Bobby Blueland songs with him. You said that very well. What? Bobby Blue, Bobby Blue Bland Band. Bobby Blue Bland. I probably said it a million times. The Bobby Blue Bland Band. Yeah. <laughs> Four Bs, Bobby Blue Bland Band. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so he he made us play extremely quiet, painfully quiet, to the point where, you know, I always want to quit because of right. it was so quiet. You know. Drums as well. Oh my God, man! It was. And was he blaring or? No, he... no. We'd be playing some <laughs> shithole bar in Destin, 
and there's a bunch of drunk people wanting to party, and we're playing a whisper. Why? It did a lot for me, you know, because, you know, instead of playing for them, we're playing for each other, the music and each other, you know. And we would go to, we would, you know, like this whole thing is if you start on 10, you have nowhere to go. If you start on zero, you can go to 10, yeah. So, so that was, yeah, so the, that was a big transition, was having a gig that is complete freedom, but also, you know, the freedom comes from out of the tune. We're playing the tune, you're playing the tune. You know, yeah. But when the, we go away from the tune, anything can happen. It's a beautiful thing. You know. So that was kind of your schooling. You know. Yeah. You didn't. You didn't study, right? I didn't study. I mean, I I, I didn't go to school like a university, but yeah, yeah. yeah. But you, I mean, you still obviously put time in and yeah. that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah. So you're kind of learning on the job. So so, um, Bruce. Um, McLaughlin, let's let's jump there. Yeah, because I remember the first time I heard McLaughlin was Matt Vishnu. Me too. Birds of fire or eternal inner mountain flame. Those two were just like, what is this? Yeah. Fact, the first time I heard it, I didn't like it. It was too. It now, was too much. I was. I what when I first heard it, I was so big in the weather report. Yeah. And I, you know, you know, when I was sixteen, and you know what Rick was doing on bass was. Not enough for me back then. Yeah, yeah. You know, because well, we get tough competition. Let's be honest. Yeah, but but you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it was, you know. Well, because when you're a 16 year old bass player, you're in the bass players that you can go. Yeah. You, it, it, but then it, when you look at the overall concept of my version of even today, I put it on. I'm like, it's like listening to Jimi Hendrix. Yes. It's. Fr- it's fresh. It's amazing, somehow. man. And the sounds back then, yeah. and what Cobbin was playing. I mean, and no Beyond shits Hammer. were given. But a lot of shits were given. But also, oh it was just like balls to the wall. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So the McLaughlin thing came about because, um, you know, I started working with Jimmy, and Jimmy was was Bruce alumni, and I, you know, and Jimmy's like, again, like, as big as a, if a guitar player influences Wayne or any of these guys growing up. I mean. ARU was just an incredible band. And then all the stuff Jimmy added after that Project Z, you know, I was like a Jimmy Herring fanboy, you know. And um, so I started working with him. And then one day it was like, hey, we're going to do this tour with McLaughlin. I was like, whoa, no shit, that's awesome. But we're going to play Ma Vishnu with him as a double band. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> So the concept was it was both bands. We play we play a set, then John would play a set, then we'd go all on stage and play Mob Vishnu tunes. Well, who's in John's band at the time? It was NTN and Ranjit, NTN and Bape and Ranjit Barot on drums, Gary Husband and John. And um, prior to the uh, that tour, I did a, I did a gig with Gary and Ranjit over in Bangladesh, playing Ranjit's music, and then Gary I did a Miles Davis tribute with Gary. Okay. So I was. I was already in okay. with those guys, which was a sc- equally scary call. Yeah. You know, because um, Ranjit writes beautiful, amazing, complicated Indian fusion. Yeah. And then, you know, Gary's just a genius. So I was, I was already kind of in with 
Roger Gear, we hung and drank, had a great time for a few days. But I never, I, and I met John in Bangladesh the year before my band played the same festival, King Baby. But you know, it's when you meet guys like John or Bruce or those type of guys, like you're kind of horrified, so you don't really say a lot. You know, we're at dinner, I'm just kind of sitting there like, <laughs> uh. yeah, like just scared to talk. But uh. so yeah, so we we get a call for the gig. We have these rehearsals, and then John says, his, basically, he's rearranged a bunch of sauce. So now. The rehearsal we did without John in Atlanta was kind of useless because we can't listen to the old songs anymore. Right. So we had basically one day in Buffalo to have all the stuff together. Um, did he send you huh? charts? Did he, did he have charts for you and stuff? Yeah. He had, his, he had these really cool garage band tracks with like charts. So. Okay. And we all did our homework like like every anybody would, and. And you know, and me and NTN really gelled, and we had all of our stuff figured out what we're gonna play. And and towards halfway through the tour, we'd switch up like, all right, tonight you do this part, do this part. You know? Cool. So, so there was like, you know, orchestrated two bass parts and all no, that it stuff. was well, we just choose what we wanted to do. Right. You know, and and so, but but we all, but I, you know, we both studied it. I mean, obviously NTN played with John forever. Um, that we could just we would switch on a dime, like yeah, like before the gig. All right, you do this. I'll do this tonight. Okay, cool. Let's switch it. Yeah. Sounds like fun. It was awesome. It was yeah, best experience of my life for sure. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not many people can say they played my vision and stuff with John McLaughlin. I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's probably never gonna happen again either. You know, he's. Jeez, you're taking them off fast, man. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Try <Oops>. to no. <laughs> awesome. Let's move down this list that I've got here. Let's talk about Fork. Yes. And um, is it Freak? Yes. That, yeah. Last record, yeah. Last record. Um, appropriately, I was listening to it on Halloween. Nice. <laughs> and um, it has like a kind of a dark, darker vibe to it. Than it does. Some of the other stuff, I, th I think. Mm-hmm. Um, cool sounds. That's Nick Hard. Nick Hard and the uh, producer engineer in New York. He's amazing. And he he got started, you know. Nick is more mostly known in kind of the indie um, or uh, kind of electronic experimental scene. Yeah. And he started working. He did the, all the rudder records. Right. So that that kind of got his foot in the door, where he started doing more instrumental stuff, and then of course started doing the snarky stuff. Yeah. And then. Okay. Fork. You know? Yeah. So a lot of it has to do with Nick Hard. You know, besides yeah. the songwriting, I mean, Nick is a very fearless guy in terms of sonic yeah. experimentation. Did you learn some some bass stuff from him? I didn't do, I, that was, the mic was still in the band. Uh, on Threek? Yeah, but, uh, but I, Nick is like one of my dear friends, right. besides all that, but, um, but in, you know, Henry's also, and Chris, and JT, and, and Mike, and those guys are all willing just to try stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, which is how it should be. Yeah. So, like, it's, I mean, it's groove-based imp improvisational music, yeah. shall we say. Like, how far out do you guys take it on stage compared to recordings? You know, uh, the coolest thing about Fork is that you can, every night's different. Yeah. You know, some nights are kind of, kind of you're laughing about what we're doing, and some nights it's like in the cut, and some nights it's 
it just it's just different you know because yeah. everybody listens to so much different stuff yeah you know and jt is on such a next level of listening and also leading mm. and following as a drummer like big picture guy huge so i mean i remember one night on this tour most of the improvs went the blues shuffles you know they just went there okay. so those were gonna do it you know? This can't be a good blues shuffle. You know? Yeah. So it's every gig is different in those terms. Did you play a lot of blues growing up? Uh, I tried to, but again, I was such a fusion jazz metal right. guy. Okay. You know, and I am, my dad is, he's a phenomenal musician. And at the time I was real big into what Victor was doing, the like kind of solo based stuff. Yeah. So I showed the gigs and do that, you know? And, and gigs with other musicians yeah <laughs> you know and uh, I remember one time he's like man you gotta cut these power tricks out on some of these tunes you know and I was just being like you don't know anything you're old <laughs> so yeah but um, but JT played in Marcus's band is that right yep yeah JT is done his uh, resume is huge but you'd never know it from him, which is another great quality yeah, of somebody. Definitely. He doesn't he doesn't wear that stuff on his sleeve. Yeah. And I had to I actually had to Google all the stuff he's done because right. he's not gonna tell you. He doesn't he doesn't give you like Marcus stories or I mean if it comes up, yeah. If I asked him he would. Yeah, cool. You know, for sure. You know. I mean, I mean and, and Henry's done some yeah. stuff. Henry, yeah, I mean Henry's another hero growing up. You know, he was in Boomish and Rudder and Yeah. Um so yeah, his body of work is outstanding as well, you know. What about um, the Kevin Scott band? Well, that's my my own personal thing is called Wax Paper. Okay. Um, I've been working on it for a few years now. Um, I've, I've the original concept was I, I I took this you know this jam session I've been doing forever, and I started multi-tracking all the improv for a month. So I had six hours of improv okay so i just go down there and edit it into songs add samples on top of it okay so at this point i have three albums of material ready to go are you going to release it as is or are you going to take those as songs and then re-record them essentially well the idea is the idea what i want to do is you i take these improvised chunks i've added in the songs and play them live yeah you know um it's pretty trippy stuff. Yeah. You know, it's all three albums are kind of different. Do you have a band in mind? Yeah, it's, it's my guys in Atlanta. Yeah. Aaron Stanley, his amazing drummer, who's playing Osnoy now. Um, and this guy, Spencer Pope, who's like a synth wizard. <laughs> um, myself. Um, this guy, Zach Piles, plays synth. I, you know, Spencer and Zach are not in the, your typical realm of a jazz mm. musician, but they improv their way of improvising is based on such an interesting perspective. It's really hip. Yeah. Because it's mostly sonic improv. Yeah. And melodic. So it's like if I'm playing this really angular part with Darren and it's getting this weird stuff, they can somehow hear a melody over it, and then the harmony might be just be kind of weird noise yeah. stuff. But it's a, that's a different. Like this whole, you know, we're down here, there's like that whole McCaslin, Danziger, mm -hmm. 
Jason Lindner, Tim LaFave, mm -hmm. you know, David Binney, Mark Juliana, like, scene or way of playing jazz today mm -hmm. that seems like it's a, it's a new, it's a new standard, it's a new sure. era, mm -hmm. you know? And you're kind of tapping in, you're, you know, you're part, part of that. Part but of that vibe now. That's, what's, that's the real interesting thing about the, the guys, too, is Spencer and Zach and, you know, and Darren, you know, they don't, like, Spencer wouldn't necessarily, I don't think those guys have even heard mm. that stuff. I mean, probably Darren has, but I know Zach and Spencer probably have. So it might be coming from something earlier that everybody's been listening to. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of... Electronic music, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it's electronic music with like a touch of square pusher. Like in it's our stuff is a lot. It's more like indie rock. Yeah. Like in terms of it, but then just weird sounds. You know? Yeah. So it's like you know I don't know. It's hard maybe to it's maybe it's the uh, proliferation of boutique pedals. Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> what it is. Yeah, we're we're gonna sell we're you know pedals we're pedal salesmen. You know when we get that. OC2 and the ring modulator and the delay pedal. Yeah. That's, that's some new stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so so you got these up and coming young ones that you played with, but what about the old guard? Some of those guys that you played with? Uh, well, the first, you know, like kind of gig gig I ever had was Bernard Purdy. Um, I was playing with Grant Green Jr. at the time a lot and Grant played with Purdy and um, I was, I was out on tour with my band and we opened for Purdy. Okay. And we, we learned a song called Teasing that Purdy was on originally with Corno Dupree. And, you know, Purdy jumps up on stage and all this stuff and, you know, raises my hand in the air and was, you know, was like, what are you doing on? I'm like, I'm there anytime you need me, you know. But, uh, but Purdy had a big input on my playing too because, he, you know, we're playing some of these old songs and he stops, hits the drum and like, let it breathe, young man. You know. And he, he was like, "Are you in the Chut Ray and Jerry Jamal?" I was like, "Yeah." My favorite goes, "But they played too much." You know. <laughs> so it was a trick question. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, you know. Again, it was like I think one of the hardest parts about being a modern player is, you know, like there's a lot of nervous. A lot of times, if I overplay, is nervousness. Mm. Like nervous overplaying. And all those old guys just really didn't do that, you know. Yeah, because they were they were writing the book, right? So they they weren't trying to, yeah, be anyone else. Or whatever. It was like, yeah, it was a gig. It was a job. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So uh, you, you so you did some shows. Yeah, did a few. We did a few festivals with him, um, and now every year I do this big uh, Christmas show in Atlanta where I MD. And he does it every year. Like a, oh, cool. It's like Fred Wesley, Purdy. Because I worked with Fred on a Russell Gunn record years ago, which I didn't know Fred was going to be there. That's, wow. So I'm in the studio, and all of a sudden he comes in, and I was like, Jesus, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I do this it's for the Edsville Collective. Every year we do a big Christmas throwdown at the Variety or Terminal West. Or we're doing the Buckhead Theater this year. But it's just getting these older guys that work with James Brown and, and all these other great artists to come in and, to me, it's like letting some of my friends experience working with them and learning. Because yeah. it's like, you know, the horn players, I mean, Fred Wesley is, Fred your, Wesley, yeah. is your horn leader. You know, 
It's so, huge. You know. And you get to play with Bernard. Yeah. They had Jabbo one year. Oh. You know. You're going to get them both at one time. I know. Jabbo passed away. Oh, did he? I think last year, yeah. Man. So. What, like, is it, have you, have you played with any of the drummers that sound like Cardi? You know what? I, I think, honestly, like, the two guys, Jeremy Stacy. Okay, I know that name. From the UK. He's a phenomenal drummer and producer. Mm. Uh, but I went to go, you know, Jeremy was a drummer for Wayne and we played in UK recently, but this was me, Jeremy, and Wayne at the Ronnie's. I knew Jeremy just from all the work he's done through his, mostly his pop work with Chill Crow and he was just, you know, he's one of those kind of drummers, drummers. Yeah. And he has an amazing student and tribute band he, that he does called the Royal Scammers. Okay. And they were playing two nights when I was there. It's just the who's who of London guys and Rob yeah. Malarkey on bass who's phenomenal. But they did uh, um, Babylon Sisters. And Jeremy played, I mean, it was like the best I've ever heard anybody do a Purdy Shuffle besides Purdy. Okay. And Mark Ronabaugh, my roommate slash just like one of ah. best friends, he's an amazing drummer, but he's played with Purdy now. So like, oh, right. And uh, actually Dwayne Trucks <clears throat> could do a perfect Purdy as well. Those are the three guys I know that, okay. that have showed me they can do it. How cool would it be that, you know, the... I mean, you could die happy if you had like, you know, oh yeah, that's that's the Kevin Scott baseline, you know? Yeah, you have like no. a, a groove named after you. <laughs> that would be amazing. I mean that would that would be pretty cool. Purdy is <clears throat> something else, man. He's he still sounds as good as he ever has. He's almost eighty. Yeah. Wow. He still hits harder than hell. Really? Yeah, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But it sounds good. Oh my god. I mean I, I, you know, it's always one of my pleasures every year if somebody new does us a gig for the Christmas show. Yeah. They're kind of nervous. And then right when Purdy kicks into something, that, when that snare hits, it's like kind of scares them a does little bit. Does it like lift the band? Do you feel like it, like Dude, those kinds of drummers make a difference kind of thing? He is, Purdy's time is like, it's perfection. It's, uh, it's an organic breathing thing. Mm. Well, I mean, it's, like Wayne's time is perfect in another sense. Yeah. You know, whereas Purdy is just, he is time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it never feels wrong. Never. You know, you're, never you're never struggling. Never. And it's breathing. It's like this breathing organism. Mm. You know, it's like. I wonder if that's something that's going to get, that's slowly getting kind of eked out of it is. drummers because it's become such a sport. Almost, you know, it's, it's yeah. like a game of athletics with drummers nowadays. And with the advent of computer recording stuff, everybody's so used to grids and or click tracks even. Yeah. But that idea of things can be chunky, but not out of time. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, in my opinion, the guys, you know, obviously Danziger can do that. Nate Wood can do that. Josh Dion can do that. Carlock? I haven't played with Carlock. Okay. But Carlock, obviously... You know, but he's, yeah, that, he's doing still he done, so. Well, yeah, all those guys are in a weird kind of little <laughs> scene together. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like, but they're all, again, I think that separates everybody. The same thing with Purdy is, is that they're musicians, you know, as well as, they're not drummers. You know, JT, 
you know that yeah. guy's time is a breathing thing yeah but he's a musician you know M- music lovers i think yeah you get um yeah. do you get some looks when you rock up with your with your board to gigs or i mean i, I mean i used to I mean, yeah and again when i when i started whipping that board around town with a p-base people thought it was crazy <laughs> you know back then yeah that was the standard i mean yeah it's it's hilarious synth bass uh i've done i've i produce and i've done some synth bass on recordings but not mm. like not live live no yeah because that seems to be the, the other thing that you got to have in your arsenal is some kind of yeah i don't really plan on doing that live yeah unless i have to I, yeah <laughs> but two two hands for one line kind you of know thing. what i mean yeah I've, uh I'm more into, if I had any kind of computer stuff, it would be mostly for sounds, sounds and sampling. Yeah. You know, I'd rather just do the bass organically. Yeah. You know. um, let's talk a little bit about effects. Okay. Something that stands out to me when you're playing is that that's as big a part of your bass lines as the notes that you choose mm-hmm. a lot of the time. So what's your, what's your process? What's your approach? What are your faves what are your discoveries uh well you know i was chris hunt got me into the effects game chris Chris drummer okay you know great producer we had a band called cloud eater that was real popular i've got written down here kevin lang and the skin flutes that's my first band right that was that was high school right there but uh (laughs) kevin lang and the skin flutes that was just a mr boyle clone but uh tried to be not even close yeah, but, you know, the first thing I ever got was an OC3. And that's when I was getting into, like, jungle and drum and bass. Okay. Because me and Chris were playing a lot together. Because at the time, Chris was, like, this really sick electronic drummer. Jojo Mayer. Yeah, sort of like that. Yeah. And uh, and then I started, you know, getting into the obsession soon after, you know. I don't know, it's like, to me... It's about utilizing any pedal you have in a musical context, mm. you know, even if it's a ring mod or some weird delay phaser thing. Yeah. Like finding ways to make that into make it a song move. So like, I guess maybe how I'm viewing it is like, it's a it's part of your improvisational palette. Yeah. Like instead of playing more notes or whatever, changing it up, you can like, change the change the sound and that changes the vibe and the energy as opposed to changing the harmony so exactly exactly would that be right yep and then you know in the studio too it's some it's, you know it's amazing all the you know the more you know about delays and reverbs like you get some really cool stuff yeah happening. well especially if you one of the things i found if you're going for like a kind of synthy bass thing there's like actually chorus and reverb or delay make it sound more like a real synth yep that you're used to hearing on a, on a record because it's always going to have a little bit of wetness on it yep and the chorus can give you that kind of wobble oh yeah that. totally yeah. that was my rig forever was a a boss yellow distortion the ODB3 yep <laughs> that thing is wild yep yeah and a OC2 and a CB3 or whatever a chorus a boss chorus yeah that yeah. was it yeah. Well, I think that's that's a good little, you know, trio or quartet to get to know, you know, different points in the chain as well makes such a big difference. It does. You know, a it lot does. of my a lot of my board is like octave 
fuzz and filter, but just in different orders, yep. in different settings, because it's different flavors, you know? Yep. So that kind of vibe. But the, the, the P bass with OC2 all flat, like the Tim sound, yep. you know, it's like, I almost kind of try and not avoid doing it, but as soon as I do it, I'm like, oh, people are going to think I'm trying to do that thing. But I don't know. Like, do you ever do you ever feel like that? Like, people are like, oh, he's he's aping that vibe or whatever. I mean, it's you get it to a certain point where it's. I mean, you know, Tim's big influence on the octave was Daryl Jones mm. from his work with Sting. You know, and. Uh, I don't think, I never, whenever I like something a lot, I don't ever study it in terms of bass playing. Because it's at this point, you know. Yeah. I, I, like catching a vibe is a lot different. Like I've, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I never sat down and like tried to transcribe Lafave bass lines because of how much, you know, we come, I mean, we come from a lot of the similar backgrounds of thought. And I love it so much. It's like you don't want to undo that magic. <laughs> no, I don't want to. No. But yeah, I mean, people were to compare and contrast everything. I mean, and in terms of like a you know the P bass thing and or jazz bass, it's like you know I'm not you know I'm not scared to you know admit like I went through a huge Anthony Jackson phase. That's where, a good phase. Where it was like everything I played was what would Anthony do, and then. You know, Chuck Rainey was another guy. Mm. You know, Chuck. I, I catch myself now. I mean, if I'm doing a, if I'm doing a session for a solo R and B band, there's gonna be some Chuck Rainey double stops in and there. You know, and to me, it's more of a tribute to him mm. because not a lot of people even know that. Mm. You know, so. But yeah, people people are gonna say things. It doesn't really matter to me. Yeah. You know, because I mean, you know, I don't think that Tim doesn't think that. No. So it doesn't matter. You yeah. Know. I guess I guess it's just because when you put on that pedal wet, everybody sounds the same. Yeah. To some you know. Yep. Regardless. But um what was I gonna say? Oh, so pedals. Let's talk about basses. Yeah. Everyone wants to talk about basses. We've talked a little bit about basses since we've been here. Um you came to my attention through researching Mulan. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you Huge advocate of Mulan. Yeah, you got a couple. Yep. Yeah. How did that come around? Uh, I was, you know, I'm, I'm a very skeptical guy. Mm-hmm. With gear or just in general? Everything. <laughs> you know, I don't, I mean, I like to have my own opinion about things or try to. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I played this, I mean, that 73P bass is, you know, like my kid. And I was skeptical of the Mulans because I was like, well, it'll never be like a Fender. So when I first played, me and Tim, when I first played a gig with Tim, it was a few years ago, four years ago maybe, and it was a double bass gig with Kevin Williams in Atlanta. And uh, he had his move on, and I played a few notes, and I was like, wow. Yeah, really? Holy shit. So he's like, well, I'm gonna, I'll hook you up with Andy or whatever. So hit up Andy, and I didn't hear back from him for a long time and uh 
eventually I was endorsed by Reunion Blues, so mm -hmm. I went to NAM just to go meet Mulan. That's my goal was to get a bass from Mulan. But that's basically what happened. So yeah. I went to Mulan, NAM, and played. It was like, cool, cool. You know, and uh, were you just playing a Fender before that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Seventy-three. Seventy-three P. And I had this Frankenstein uh, Highway One J that I still have. Now it's a fretless. Yeah. You know. I got the move on Jay now, but uh, yeah, but uh, but man, I, I mean, it's just something about those bases. You know, I had a, a good friend of mine, Coy Bowles, give me a Nash P bass years ago, mm. and it's a great bass. I've used it on a lot of sessions, but it was never vibe enough for me to play live. Right. There's something about it, you know, it wasn't like playing a Fender, but. I think Mulan's have surpassed Fenders at this point in terms of playability and sound. Mm. You know, um, I mean, yeah. you told so. Like that's one of the reasons of going for a small handmade instrument. I guess is that it should be better than this stock Fender. Otherwise, just buy a Fender. Exactly. I mean, and I'd even dare to say that you know I've a would some old Fenders in the studio with the Mulan's and the Mulan's have kicked their asses a lot of the times. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, when you plug a P bass in a DI and track it, and then there's a whole band playing on top of you, it's, we're talking small amounts of difference between, you know, a $12,000 59P bass and a $700 <laughs> Fender P no, bass. It's true. You know, it's, like, it's, it's different, like we'll hear it and we'll feel it, and feeling it is probably one of the biggest differences, I think. Yeah. Because it makes you play differently and you yes. feel differently about it. Yeah. Or in terms of the actual finished product, they would both do the job? Yeah, they would. And, and people are so obsessed with the, the kind of status of 60s P's. Yeah. But, you know, out of as many as I've ever played in music shops or friends, I'd probably play two that I would play. Yeah. Out of maybe 11 and then you look at the price tag and go oh well yeah just, i mean you gotta understand it's like anything back then they weren't factory you know so there was a lot of mistakes and a lot of lemons yeah that, well exactly you know just because it's a, an old fender doesn't mean it's going to be a good fender exactly so i think the, the the mulan obsession is that you can essentially get an amazing sounding playing bass for way cheaper for the price of a new a new fender factory base essentially pretty much. pretty much so it's like i don't see the point of buying a yeah a fender factory unless you just find some good squire mm. <laughs> you know i mean i've i've played more better squires than i have standards or american yeah. standards well i mean this this greco guy that i have like that's uh i got that for 600 bucks and it's does the P bass thing? Yeah, man. I mean, I like it. it's a flatter net too. It's, it's kind of like between a jazz and a P almost. Yeah, man. That's. Yeah, I mean, that's sick. Yeah, I stuck a, I got a, put a Shaler bridge on it. Hell yeah. And a Freeland pickup, overwound. I love it, and dude, that is such a 
lawsuit base. Look at the look at the logo on there. I know. It's like a Gibson-looking logo. <laughs> the Fender letters. That's amazing. Yeah. I, ju I just picked up a Simar. You ever seen them? Remember the old Ibanez Roadsters? Yeah. So oh, I saw it on your on your Instagram. Yeah. 70s jazz bass thing. Yeah. 300 bucks. Like, wow. And it's like, I want you like an, an Ash Maple 70s jazz bass, but I didn't have five grand to spend on it. This popped up and I was like, oh, got it set up, but I better work on it. It's just like, cool, now I've got a 70s sounding jazz bass. If the right one ever comes along and I have the money, then sure, I'll consider swapping it out, but. I mean, but even then it's kind of like, is it nostalgic value almost yeah. while we do that? And also I kind of like that it's a Greco and it's a similar like, that it's not a Fender yeah. to some extent. I don't know why. I'm the same way. <laughs> I just like to be on the left. Yeah, you know? of course. <laughs> um, rigs, mm -hmm. um, Ampeg guy, obviously Noble. Yeah, oh yeah. The Noble preamp's a big part of dark glass. The vibe. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you're on the road so much, you just kind of got a vibe with whatever happens. Yeah, I left, yeah, I had, my, my gigging rig in Atlanta was left at a, a nightclub for months because I never, I mean, I remember one time I actually had to borrow a bass amp for a gig in Atlanta because I had my, they were using my amp at the club. <laughs> so. You charging them rental? No. Free beer? Should have. Yeah, should have. <laughs> um, do you practice? I do. What, what, would that, what would a practice session look like for you? Uh, a lot of it now is working on material. Repertoire? Yeah, repertoire for practicing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or if I'm producing, re rearranging or something. Or if I actually sit down and play bass, just for the idea of shedding. Mm. A lot of it is, you know, I'm a huge freak about Robbie Shakespeare and uh, the okay. dub, old dub. Yeah. So I'll just sit down there for an hour or two and play along it. Just basically go on to YouTube and just find a playlist. Yeah. Whichever song pops up, start playing it. Just try and fit it just down along. Yeah. And then I've been working on a lot of like Jocko again. Okay. Lately. Yeah. Um, Is it what's it been like revisiting? Because it's probably been you know t it's 10, been amazing. Fifteen years. I mean, it's it's just even more devastating now, man. <laughs> like it's beyond comprehension. Yeah. Really. And as a kid, it was you know I used to. Uh, you know, I had a lot of his stuff transcribed, like note for note solos and all the grooves he played. And uh, so I've been revisiting that, you know. Just, just. Are you, are you, do you dig out the jazz bass for that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fretless? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, Havana and Continuum and. Man, yeah, and Port of Entry. Mm. Um, uh, man, the 8.30 record, all that stuff, sightseeing, I mean, it's just... Did you ever get the Trio of Doom? Oh my God, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dark Prince, we used to play that song all the time. Yeah, right. Do da be da 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 That's been kind of like a really zen kind of thing as a, as a the Shed Jocko, you know? You know, and sometimes I sometimes like yeah, I, I like to you know I like to study like studio recordings, mm -hmm. whatever the bass player was doing. Okay. From from Steve Woodward to, uh, 
or Aretha Franklin, whatever, you know. Nathan East, Will Lee? Yeah, 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 of course. Did, you ever, did you ever have a Marcus period? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I saw Marcus in Atlanta uh, when I was in 17. Okay. You know? All right. Blew my mind. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, I used, to, I used to play some of those songs in high school with my band or try to. Cool. Uh, yeah, huge Marcus, you know. Stanley? Never really got really huge into Stanley Clark. Yeah. Um, trying to think who else. Victor Bailey? Yeah, Victor was horrifyingly good. Mm. I never really studied his stuff, though. Were you a Prince fan? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Well, I mean, you know, some people are like, no, I never got it. What? I know. I kill them whenever, whenever you know. Shove them no, dead now. <laughs> but uh, that's why you got me out here. Is gonna be like, yeah, because of white prince. <laughs> he can't swim. Or he's yeah, we're just drowning. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I, I give a yeah. Every you know, I'll find some random prince cut and put on. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, my buddy Jesse had a subscription to his music service. The the MPG or whatever it was. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So he has he has all that stuff. Little eggs so, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. But yeah, Prince was brilliant. Um, of course, had a huge victory phase. Yep. O'Teal, huge O'Teal phase. Oh, yeah. In fact... He, he kind of played in some of the, the guys you ended up playing with, right? Yeah, he was in ARU, and he played with Jimmy's band. And I've, you know, and I've built O'Teal for a minute. But there's, you know, it's so weird. I During the... Uh, the John tour, my, my one solo every night, besides the ending, was like over Tron Dasa, which is an old Air U tune. Okay. It's really complicated changes. And you're like, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. No, uh, <laughs> but it's so funny. I was playing, <laughs> I was playing this recording we have from uh, uh, some, some multicam thing we did, streaming thing. And I, I I didn't even check any of it out until after the tour. Where where my buddy's Rick's car, and he starts laughing. He goes, that is all O'Teal stuff you're playing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, so it sounded good. Damn it! I was like, man, you know, but it's hard to get away from you know, like when it comes like O'Teal's way of soloing. Yeah, it's so intentional and so soulful. You know, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's good. It sounds good. Like you want to. Sound good, I yeah. guess. Like, it's, you it's know. just, you know, because I, you know, I haven't really, I got out of the soloing thing a while back, and the irony is when I was actually studying soloing, I was more into like Pat Martino or something. So I was oh, really going down. Pat Martini? Yeah. No, I, was, I love Pat, but, but Pat Martino, yeah. I, I thought Martino's concept was linear, only diminished, only augmented, you know, Not only me. minor <laughs> for everything. Yeah. I was like, I love it. So. Yeah. So was, I was forever kind of trying to be a bridge between, you know, Martino, Garrison, and Jocko. You know. Cool. But then, and I didn't, again, like, O'Teal was another guy, like, I never wanted to study him because I loved it so much. Like, yeah. Like, it was like, not saying I didn't love Martino, Garrison, or Jocko, obviously, but, like, it was, he was so close to home that mm. it was kind of like, you know, which is hard for me now. But then it came out anyway. It's hard not, like. Yeah. You know, but yeah. You know. Cool, man. Well, I reckon we ticked off a lot of 
a lot of things. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, thanks for hanging out. Oh, man. Wrap it up there. Sure. Um, Kevin Scott, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>